Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to you. Hey, how's it going? Raptors Weekly Podcast here after a bit of a hiatus. I've been traveling and uh, doing work related to the Raptors while also neglecting work related to the Raptors. It's a bit of a quandary, not a good one. But we're here with Vivek Jacob, who is a freelance writer for Raptors.com, CBC, and Complex. Some great names for a great guy and some great work. Vivek, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, obviously, tough loss for the Raps last night, but uh, I am well. And it was obviously great to see you the other day and finally, you know, catch up. Link up, uh, as the people say. That, that was something <laughs> we got to do, which was great. Is there a, are you a person who looks for blame? Or like, what's your, what's your thing you do after a loss? What's that? A thing I do after a loss? Um... You know, I think it's it's more just, hey, what are the trends of the season? What did the Raptors do better in regards to those trends? What did they do worse? That type of thing. So obviously, uh, you know, in this game against the Nets specifically, you know, we've talked about the offensive rebounding. We've talked about, um, you know, the effort being a little lackluster at times and failing to find that consistency in that regard and uh you know those two are probably the two things that emerge the most out of the trends and then obviously the late game offense okay let's start there then uh late game offense any uh like the flash bulb thoughts that pop up in your brain when you think about it i think uh there needs to be a bit more structure in the games especially if it's fred involved and uh i think one thing that maybe is emerging as a personal opinion of mine is if it's going to be Fred at the end of games, I do think it should mostly be a catch and shoot scenario uh, as opposed to him attacking off the bounce and getting himself into trouble. Um, you know, we, we saw how the, the play last night ended up. We saw the play against OKC. Uh, we, we saw the play in game seven against Boston in the bubble. And so I think when, uh, he's the one sort of trying to create for himself off the dribble, especially at, at the end of the game, especially at the end of the clock. It's just, it's just really tough. And so I'd much rather see him in a catch and shoot scenario. So how do you, how do you conjure that up then when you think about, okay, let's put Fred or maybe even Gary Trent Jr. in a position because Gary Trent, I think has, a, I think he's like 55 or between 55 and 60% on very small volume. Um, and on almost completely un- or assisted um, shots in the clutch. And so how, what, what, how do you go about getting the ball to Gary 
or Fred for an open catch and shoot three? Are there any pet actions or anything you like for the Raptors so far this year? Well, I, I do kind of like, you know, under the whole premise of getting Scotty reps, uh, I, I do like the idea uh, of him in the mid post or the post, like getting him those actions uh, and then trying to function off those uh, where, you know, Pascal is a screener, whoever else is on the court is a screener and freeing up uh, Gary and Fred from there. Uh, and then I think vice versa as well. We've seen how well Scotty can cut. So Pascal can be in those situations too. Um, I would like to see him, uh, you know, I I'd like to think that they haven't moved on from Pascal as a crunch time scorer, uh, after last season, I would like to think there's still a bit more, uh, leeway there. So I think those are the two primary options for me. Um, and then obviously once OG returns, I think that's a big one where with the elevated ability to create his own shot, uh, I think that's another one where I think he's also, you know, cognizant that, Hey, if Fred's open, I'll find him. If Gary's open, I'll find him. But if not, uh, I can elevate and get my own shot. The, the mid, the mid post stuff um, strikes me as like really interesting, especially depending on what you run around it. They tried to do it last night. Like they did the horns, and it didn't filter to Scotty either time. It filtered to Pascal, and basically nothing came out of it. They ran like horns out to get Fred an open three-point look, and it's just the, the Nets were like, okay, this is the sixth time we're seeing this. We can cover this. It's not too big a deal. But it, it might have been interesting to see it filtered to Scotty and see what happens from there. It's, it's really interesting because, as you talked about, you know, hoping that they don't move away from Pascal as a crunch time option, I'm in the same boat. He has... He has the skill set that should, you know, it, it, it makes sense as a crunch time option. He passes above average for his position. Even on some games, he's elite. Um, the mid-range has been, while it can come and go, I guess, to some degree, it's been fairly consistent and fairly spot on, um, especially the past, like, six or seven games. And he's a, he's a low turnover player relative to uh, the things he does. As long as he's not going downhill and not passing out of the air, typically he won't turn the ball over. So all that stuff makes for platonically a pretty good like crunch time player, but obviously he's had the bad luck. So that's really interesting. I do. Um, I do think there is something to be said about like Fred and Gary off ball for sure. And they are very deliberate about getting Fred on ball and sending him downhill, which I understand that he has like a pedigree obviously for big shots but as you said, like it's this is catch and shoot stuff. He he did make his bones as a as a shooter in the finals. These crazy like sidestep threes, like these, you know, end of shot clock shots. But it's it's different when it's just like create downhill against the set defense and see what happens. And I, I certainly he's been he's been uh, coming up short as far as that goes. It's just I I always like to hear what people think is the alternative rather than just saying I don't like this. And I like to hear exactly what they would do because in the game last night, like Scotty couldn't get anything going. Scotty plus bench was a really bad unit. And then they had a counter to get Scotty like a weak side or a strong side action, which it, it was an empty side action. And then, so he got free throws and it's like, well, when they aren't able to shade him heavily, then things work. And it's like, well, how do you, what is the machination that frees him up and all that kind of stuff? So I would love just for them to be more inventive 
actually, whether it's Pascal, Scotty, Fred, whatever. I just, it seems like kind of rote, one note. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, we've seen Nick Nurse have great ATOs, uh, you know, over the course of a game. So uh, when it comes to those final possessions, uh, we would like to see a bit more of that. And, um, you know, some of it comes down to just an individual decision, right? And, you know, if it comes down to, you know, I, I bring up that in game seven uh, shot by Fred, obviously, you know, they were trying to run the hammer set and it got taken away. Uh, and then it's like, where do you go from there? Uh, you know, I, I think back to uh, the past to OG Ananobi by Kyle Lowry, you know, how many people can make that pass? That was not, you know, a play by design. There were a couple of actions that got taken away and then you end up with that. And so it's about having the individual players as well who can go to the secondary tertiary option. Um, and so that's something that seems a bit lacking right now. Um, and maybe again, that, that's another thing that you only develop uh, over the course of reps. And so... Van Vliet having these struggles now, maybe that's something that as he watches the film, it opens his eyes to other things. Yeah, I think he maybe has a tendency to like buckle down into hezzy splacac mode, if you know what I mean. Like, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, things get kind of crazy for him, goes into the, you know, the size ups, the hezzies, all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, then we're all sitting on the jumper, which, you know, Fred Van Vliet jumper is not such a bad thing, but certainly it hasn't been very rewarding lately. Uh, okay, so while we did talk about late game execution, and that is important, there was a handful more possessions in the game last night against the Nets where the Raptors just underperformed, and they didn't. You don't even have to think of like creative ways to get the most out of players or anything like that. You just say, "Oh, just box out, just rebound better." Like sixty to forty-one, and David Duke Jr. grabbing six offensive rebounds. Um, Kessler Edwards grabbing four, like these types of guys being able to get to the offensive glass this way. What, what have you made of this, this trend of uh, troubling rebounding on the defensive end for the Raptors? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just closing out the possession. And uh, especially on the weak side where, you know, you see, for example, a shot go up from the left corner or, you know, uh, the left extended elbow and then on the right side they're thinking okay i'm not involved in the play anymore but you are and then you see their man just dart towards the rim uh and get the offensive rebound i think those ones have been especially frustrating um and again when when it comes down to those plays it's it's not so much about strength and size, which is, which is a personnel problem. It's, it's more about that attention to detail. It's more about quickness. It's more about all the aspects that the Raptors are supposed to thrive on. So there's no real excuse as to why they shouldn't be able to do it. You know, I, I kind of understand the, the ones inside where, you know, a bigger, stronger player uh, is just able to muscle uh, their way to the rim, get, you know, the put back and that's going to happen. But the ones that are long shot rebound, the, the long shot, long rebound, those are the ones that are particularly frustrating to me. This, this takes me to the big question I had about Utah versus Chris Boucher closing late. 
And Utah, who last game against the Knicks, you know, played in small lineups, had 10 rebounds in, I think, like 26 minutes. And if you watch, like, this is just fully eye test stuff, but watch a Utah Watanabe game and see how many rebounds that he chases down that maybe David Duke Jr. or Kessler Edwards may not have gotten to, like that type of thing. And also, like Chris Boucher last game was just floating out in space. Like some some place he did not have a guy. He did not have a guy to guard. And that was really confusing to me because I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> find a guy. And that translates not into just not finding a shooter for a possession, a la Patty Mills, the play that Joe Wolfon was highlighting on Twitter. And so anybody go to Joe Wolfon's Twitter account, you'll see it. But the fact that, like, if you're not guarding a guy, you also don't have a natural box-up matchup or box-out matchup. And it's like, well, God, you need a guy who can be disciplined and who can put a body on somebody and that kind of stuff. Even though did Chris Boucher sky for a couple boards? Yeah. But, eh, you know, like, I think there's possessions that could have been saved with Utah. But it, it's not just Chris Boucher. It's everybody on the whole and yeah the the 60 boards overall and 19 offensive rebounds is not it's not unforgivable it's just like how do you let this happen really yeah uh, and you know if we were to go back to that play where patty mills ties the game and actually understand okay why does chris boucher not finish off the possession and chase patty mills to the perimeter it's because once he sticks with Patty Mills in the paint and then the pass is made to the corner to Blake Griffin, you can see him look at Blake Griffin uh, and think, okay, the shot's coming. I've got to be ready to rebound. And so again, that's just assuming that the possession is about to end prematurely. Um, and, and again, that attention to detail that, hey, there's still four seconds on the shot clock. That's a lot of time. And the veteran like Blake Griffin isn't going to just, you know, panic and throw one up. He's probably uh, going to be smart enough to figure out uh, a way to get the ball to Patty Mills or, you know, figure out if there's a better play to make. And so, you know, uh, again, you're right that it shouldn't be about just picking on Chris Boucher because this is definitely a team-wide issue. Uh, but I think that's an example of what's happened with the team where they think they've done their job, uh, but it's not quite over. It's that's probably the worst part, right? Is I know some people and, and rightfully so have qualms about the late game production and how they, you know, the, the actions they went to the place that they ran and that kind of stuff. Totally. But that stuff is hard all the time. It's really hard to manufacture good late game offense. and there's some guys who you just plug in and it happens. KD is one of them. Like all of the breakdowns to, to the Raptors credit, at least all of their defensive breakdowns were coming after they were just throwing everything at KD. Now, was it always the right decision? Who knows? But at least it was coming, trying to stop KD who you plug him in. And that's a late game offense onto himself. But the Raptors, they're trying to figure out late game offense, which is difficult, but they didn't do the things that are easy. The low-hanging fruit, I feel like, is what got to them in this game, even though there were other things that went wrong. I think that's the clear thing that you look at and say, this game was well within reach without asking guys to discover new aspects of themselves. You just have to ask them to box out just to rebound. So um, we're going to try and convince these guys 
to box out. Do you have any catchy new names for like a box out that might catch on with the kids? You know, make make it something popular to do. Well, uh, I was thinking about it, you know if I were an assistant coach or something like that, how would I make it fun or uh, you know make it interesting on the film or something like that? And you know, you hear about coaches as they're going through the film, they kind of insert snippets uh, to make it you know you're not just calling out a player for their mistakes constantly there's a bit of levity to it and so I, I was trying to think of you know what do I think about when I when I see the Raptors try and secure a board on the defensive glass uh you know a couple songs come to mind uh you know ludicrous move <laughs> I'd like to see a bit more of that um Lupe Fiasco's daydreaming <laughs> that's another one that comes to mind so um i'd basically make a bunch of clips where you know i'd say are you ludaing or looping <laughs> very good yeah and, that's uh, uh that's very creative i like that a lot and the sign points accordingly and 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 then we'd see how invested they get in in having more ludas than lupes good call <laughs> i saw somebody suggest they be called baked beans and I thought that was really good. Um, but it, it is very uh, Scotty-centric, so I don't know how you sell the rest of the team on it. Luda and Lupe, though, I think is uh, as good a way to do it as any uh, to hold it down. Okay, uh, let's talk about Scotty to get Scotty-centric. These defensive steps he's made um, over the past few games, as I talked about with Chris Boucher in that past game, like floating seemingly without purpose, and sometimes when guys float off ball, it's dangerous for the opposing team. Like think of, uh, you know, Paul George or Andre Roberson, like during that, that wonderful OKC Thunder year, those guys are floating off ball as was Russell Westbrook. And there's a lot of potency to it. And they're kind of mucking up actions by crossing into different passing lanes and driving lanes and stuff like that. And, and Chris Boucher certainly wasn't doing that. And neither was Scotty Barnes for a large part of the season, but now his hovering defensively seems to serve like, a very specific purpose in help side defense in mucking up those passing and driving lanes. And it really does seem to have clicked within like the past three games. It's a very noticeable change. What have you made of that? I think the biggest thing I make of it is him coming to terms with uh, not just the Raptors defensive schemes, but uh, opposing offenses and what they're trying to do. And uh, number one, you know, to make the point off ball and make the point on ball, you can see when he's defending on ball, uh, the way he's funneling uh, the player towards the help. And that seems a lot more intentional uh, and suited to the Raptors scheme. And so uh, by virtue of that, when he's off ball, he understands now which way the attacking player is going to be headed, which way, uh, the offense is trending and where he can pick his spots to then go help off uh, his men. And so I think those two things are the biggest shifts that I've seen. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've seen as well. No, I think especially the on-ball stuff is a great point about being cognizant of where his help is. There was a game against the Knicks where they ran a ball screen for RJ Barrett to go to RJ's left. He's obviously very strong to his left. 
And a la Chris Bosh, when we think of Chris Bosh hedging guys out to the sideline like that, sidling guys, sidestepping and making sure that they have to revert court or reverse course. That's what Scotty did. And he forced RJ to his right hand. RJ reversed it. And then Scotty filtered back into the help and let Chris Boucher operate as the main defender afterwards because it was RJ on his right hand. And Chris Boucher basically just has to put up a contest. RJ airballed the look. And like that's he sold out to deny RJ what RJ really wants. And then he knew to switch off of RJ when RJ was at a weaker point in his offensive game. And that's like a very good microcosm of his on-ball stuff, which still isn't as good as his off-ball stuff at this point. But, and and like, you know, it remains to be seen about like foot speed and angles and how potent he really will be against like the smaller guards in the NBA. But that play against RJ was an example of really executing a good game plan and using his gifts to do it. And that's that's all you can ask for from a player. And then off-ball, we're looking at a guy who, is abandoning his check at always the right time? Like, question mark, right? Because it's the guy's in the air. The last few games, he hasn't been, he hasn't paid for it. He's leaving his guy full out for these reckless abandoned contests that have been paying off ad nauseum. Like, it's just, they keep paying off. He keeps getting to the ball. He keeps changing shots. And it makes him look like a whirling dervish on the defensive end. And he just isn't paying for it currently. And that's the thing about defense. And Gary Trent Jr. is a good example of this. Like most of Gary Trent Jr.'s steals this year aren't passing lane steals. They're on ball thefts. Like he's got, he, he's just got the timing and he's not fouling a lot. And there's no way to explain that from a craft point of view, really, because you can't dig in on what these guys are doing. You just have to say, well, I guess this guy's good at this. And Scotty, as far as abandoning a guy to come over for help for contests, it's, it's not Draymond Green level, but he seems to have a great sense of when to attack as a defender. Yeah, I, I think you've put it perfectly there. I think you've summed it up. I think the instincts, uh, and we've talked a lot about his feel for the game. And I think now when you marry you know, the knowledge of what teams are trying to do, what the Raptors as a team are trying to do uh, with his natural ability and where he can pick his spots, I think that's where... Now, uh, you know, you, you get those highlight plays, you get that specialness out of him um, because he knows exactly where uh, his opportunities lie. Yeah, it's, I don't know, man. It's been pretty miraculous over the past few games. Obviously, the Nets game isn't like a great example, but it, it wasn't for anybody from a defensive standpoint. But geez, the, the two games prior to that, I just was marveling at him all the time. like these low help side rotations where he's operating as certainly not Rudy Gobert, Miles Turner, but a staunch rim protector. And like these big sweeping rotations are really complimentary of his, of his length and the way that he reads the floor as a defender. And for the Raptors, especially against the Knicks, for them to use him as the low man instead of against the Nets, where a lot of times you'd saw he was defending stuff above the break. Like, that's that's a really interesting decision to make is to move this guy around all the time as a rookie and just say there's different spaces you're going to defend in, figure it out. And the fact that he figured out the low man stuff against the Knicks so quickly was was awesome. Uh, do you have any extra thoughts on Scotty's defense? Scotty's defense? No, I think uh, we've gotten to everything there is to there. 
uh, yeah, I, I just expect him to keep getting better from here because especially once OG Ananobi comes back and we talk about being knowing uh, about knowing when to pick your spots. Uh, I think OG makes that easier for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so talking of OG picking spots easier for everybody, the defense as a whole has oscillated between the league's near league's best, not the league's best because the Warriors have been way better than anybody else, but this team has been really good defensively then really bad defensively, then really good defensively, and then middling defensively. Where do you think they fall? Like, do you have an actual expectation of this team? I I understand there's like everybody oscillates between good and bad, but how big a range do they have currently to you? And where do you think they end up? I think the encouraging thing is the range is decreasing. Uh, I, I think they are finding the best version of themselves more consistently. Uh, so I do lean towards them finishing the season somewhere, you know, maybe in that 11 to 14 range, which I think would mean that they are probably, you know, closer to, you know, the eight to 10 range most of the time. Uh, the rest of the way obviously they'll be dragged down by the horrible stretches that they have and I think that's you know par for the course with a very young team you are just going to have stretches where you have those breakdowns and you have uh, struggles especially on this uh, second night of a back-to-back I think you know younger players are probably more prone to uh, letting up a little bit Um, so you know I, I think people always make the case that oh you know the veterans are the ones that need to take it easy and this and that. But I feel like there's almost uh, an institutional knowledge that comes with playing a back-to-back uh, that young players don't quite have. Well, yeah. it's And also like pacing on the floor too. Like LeBron James, that, that incredible stat that came out that he was walking 85% of games. It's, it's not to that degree, of course, but there's a level of knowing when to take your rest on court during game gameplay, like that kind of stuff. That's really interesting. Um, what has popped out to you as surprising in good and bad ways so far this year? Because I think the Raptors defense, while it's maybe ended up where people thought, I think the the way that it has played out has been surprising for many people. Yeah, I, I think in terms of the good, I, I think individually, you know, Gary Trent, I don't think anyone would have had him as, you know, among the lead leaders in deflections. Why? <laughs> So I think that's the one that stands out to me. Uh, You know, Fair Van Vliet, you expect him to play at the level that he's played at. Uh, Precious was sort of a question mark coming in. And so I think he's been uh, improving uh, on the defensive end. And I think he's hit, he had hit a nice stride before uh the shell uh, the shoulder tendonitis that kind of ruled him out uh, here and now obviously the the protocols so i think those those are the ones that have been sort of a pleasant surprise on the defensive side of the ball uh in terms of the bad i mean i i can't say i'm all too surprised uh, with what i've seen from chris boucher uh you know that it's just something that seems to be a, a struggle for him uh, in terms of positional defense, uh, you know, 
like to me he is the skinny version of Hassan Whiteside right and he's like he'll, he'll get you those highlight plays but uh in terms of actually staying true to the team's defensive principles that's something that you can't expect uh, from him not with any consistency anyway so uh yeah what would would be a surprise on uh you know the bad side of things i guess just just how how many times they've broken down that the inconsistency is probably the biggest surprise because i think when you came into this season and compared the roster with last year you felt that there was a significant enough uh talent upgrade uh, that you wouldn't see uh, the drop-offs the, that we've seen. Uh, and so I think that has probably been the biggest bad surprise. What about you? Um, bad surprise, yeah, the consistency is definitely something. Although prior to the season, I said I expected them to underperform their defensive talent. Bad surprises, I mean, if you had asked me like two weeks ago, I would say Scotty's worse defensively than I expected. And not like in a, there's a huge referendum way. I think of him as a worse defender in the long term. No, just like he's been up to that point. Like he's been the worst defender in a lot of the lineups they've played, especially since they have guys like Yuta Watanabe coming off the bench. Right. And if he's not sharing the fourth Chris Boucher, Scotty was likely the guy making the most mistakes during these games. And so like even Delano Banton, had like a decent idea of how to X out a little bit quicker than um, Scotty, but obviously Scotty came along like <laughs> right away. And so that's all moot point. Good surprises. I think precious Achua is good, good defender. Honestly, um, during the preseason, everything that popped about his game was offensive because he was like going coast to coast, like, you know, poor man's magic Johnson, right? The handle looked tight. He was hitting threes at a, you know, an unsustainable clip. And so the precious Achua stuff, it looked like, was he going to present some sort of interesting ceiling offensively? Because, you know, maybe he, there'll be like the stuff that Scotty runs, like keeper plays and like these little actions where he can manipulate with his dribble. Who knows what that opens up? But basically the, the thing that's happened this year is precious is actually, I think, been a demonstrably better rim protector than anybody else on the roster while also being just an absolute travesty offensively. The, like, we're, we're saying Chris Boucher doesn't know where he is defensively last game. Precious does that offensively every game. Like, when his defender cheats off of him to shade other players, and he has all this space, he just has no idea what to do with it. He's like, well, what do I do with myself now? I'm wide open. How do I get the ball? How do I show as an option for the pass? All this kind of stuff, so... I mean, in a good way, Precious has been way better defensively than I thought. And then just as like an interesting thing, I find that Pascal Siakam, his mobility is a really good fit for the defense, but he, more so than any other player, just refuses to gamble the way that other players do. Like he's so much more interested in contain than he is in turnover. And I think that's really interesting because as far as his his core coverage, his, his God-given abilities and like how he reads plays as a defender. You'd think this is a guy who could be approaching like two steals a game or something, but he's been so muted on that end. And I wonder like, is this a guy who's looking at everybody else gambling and saying, I'm just going to work on contain. I'm just going to be the back line. I'm going to provide coverage. 
if that's sent down, like that's something that he talked about with a nurse and co or whatever. I think that's really interesting because OG and Fred are gambling way more than they ever did. But Pascal is gambling less. He seems to be the only player on the roster who is playing that way. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I do feel that's something that's been discussed and he's sort of been the one to lay back. And, you know, who knows, maybe some of it might have been also him truly getting his legs under him and saying, you know, until I get to that point where I feel like I can take a gamble and then if I miss out, still be able to recover until I get to that point, uh, I'm going to play it safe. So, you know, maybe you know, 10, 15 games from now, we'll have a better idea if this is just the way Pascal is going to defend this season. But yeah, I would not be surprised if, based on what we've seen so far, if that's by design and saying, hey, if if we're going to go all out with Fred and Gary and OG when he's healthy, we do need someone that can, you know, sort of hold the fort uh, behind them. And and, you know, let's face it, some of that comes down to uh, what's available at center as well, right? And I think when you had uh, a Marc Gasol and, uh, and, you know, Serge Ibaka to a slightly lesser extent, you could afford to take those chances a bit more as well. And so I think uh, the level of risk behind those other guys uh, increases just that little bit more when it's alongside say a precious Achua or um, you know, Ken Birch or Boucher, especially, or, or whoever it is at the five. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, I definitely agree with you that like, we'll see over the next 15 games because I think Pascal he's there now or, or as close to there as most players get during a long grueling NBA season. Like he's, He's in a pretty good spot as far as his burst. Is it the same as like his top end burst? Who knows? Like there's there's a bunch of different things that NBA players work through, but his his mobility, his burst, all that kind of stuff seems to be around peak. Um, so that's why I want to talk about next. I think he looks pretty good, Duncan on KD. Yeah, pretty good, pretty nice. Uh, averaging 19, 7.6, 3.7. And shooting, I think his true shooting percentage is at like 55% currently. And the defense has, he's had ups and downs for sure. It's trended more positive um, relative to his teammates, I think. Because they obviously were in a very bad defensive downward spiral when he first came back. Although I, I certainly don't extrapolate his return into why they were bad defensively. But he also wasn't as good as he can be. He was just good relative to the team. And so the defense has been kind of a wash for a guy who's expected to be near or at all NBA level. But the offense, I think, is something that you can really look at and you can dig in on some areas. And I'm going to ask you, what are some areas you've dug in on that you think like you have a good beat on for as far as Pascal's return offensively? I would say... Um the ability to create separation in the mid range, because to me, that's two things. That's one, the tightness of his handle, uh, and two, um, his herky jerky sort of stop and go and stop again. And, uh, I think those two things have progressed to a very strong level. I think, you know, if you had asked me say about 
seven, eight games into the season, I would have said offensively, he's been okay. You know, and, and now I think he's mostly hovering from good to very good with sparkles of great. And I think uh, now I, I think you're right that he is at a place where physically it looks like everything is in tune. So, you know, one thing is the ability to create the, the mid range. Um, and then the other thing too is uh, I will say is just, you know, being up to game speed in terms of making reads. And you saw that early on in the season when the double came, when uh, help was coming or uh, just those initial reactions were a step slow. And now you're seeing the timing come through on the playmaking um, on understanding where he's got that little bit of separation to just go. So I think those are game speed things that was always going to take a bit of time. And now it looks like he's very much there. Now I've been like very pro Pascal as a writer, as somebody who covers this game for a while now. And it's interesting to see now, I don't know if this is rose colored glasses, but I think his game is the most affected by the current roster because you see like his best games are the ones where he builds out from the mid range and he just has to lift from there very. And he did have a couple shots last game against the nets where it was provided to him by teammates, but it seems like, Pascal's touches currently are mostly self-created and they're being asked to beat a defense that's sinking in. And it's like, you know, it's really interesting to see this metamorphosis of his game that as you talk about, like his, his herky jerky stuff and his handle is like, this is a guy who came into the league and creates with footwork because his handle hadn't progressed that much in college. And now he's a guy who tries to create with all of it and has a mid-range game that's grown. And that's what sets the tone for his game. Most of these nights, I find, is like if he's not getting out in transition and he's clearly getting doubled and shaded in on in the post, very rarely does he find the space or time to work there. And so mostly the defense kind of huddles in and he has to hit a shot over top. And that's been very interesting because it does not lean towards his natural gifts. And that's, I think, like Scotty for the most part, when he's succeeding, you're seeing a guy who's in empty side actions where he gets to just kind of be very, like he's great at using like hop steps and skip steps to stay mobile and bouncy while holding a dribble. And guys obviously have had a tough time keeping up with him. He gets deep and he's hit like, he's hit a lot of push shots. He's hit a lot of tough shots in the post. And Pascal doesn't really get the benefit of that. And so it's interesting to watch like Fred get the pick and roll possessions. And to Scotty to get all the weak or the empty side stuff, which is great. And I love that. But OG and Pascal this year, as has been the case for many of the Raptors, like main guys are just relegated to like isolation hell and make it work. Is there anything you've thought about that? Because I, I haven't seen a bunch of conversations about it, but it's certainly something I've noticed. I would say, you know, when you bring that up, the one thing I do think about looking back on, the first half of the 2019-20 season, uh, some of the 18-19 season, is the one thing we don't see as much now is uh, Pascal had this sort of ramp-up dribble move. Um, and it was almost like a little bit of a hop or, you know, he's basically ramping up to go. Um, and I, I wonder if that one is just... As you mentioned before, you know, 
not having quite top gear yet. And I think that's something that needs that top gear. And so, uh, you know, when you talk about the steps that Scotty's able to take with his size, um, I think that's something that if Pascal gets back, will add a little extra to his game. Um, and again, I think you make a great point about the roster construction where the spacing has to be there as well in thinking that he can get all the way to the rim. Uh, and, and so is that something that's also taken away that move? Uh, and, and so he feels it has to be very much, you know, side to side, get the step, then sort of slowly work your way towards the rim. And I think that's something that, you know, again, every player has their own calculus of, uh, you know, what move is best in certain situations. And if the situations that most frequently present themselves to him are ones where he has to operate in the middle of the floor. Um, and the only way he's really going to get a shot attempt at the rim is those post-ups. Um, then that's where you're just not going to see uh, a move like, you know, that ramp up triple that we used to see. I don't know if you remember uh, mm -hmm. what I'm talking to, what we're talking about. Yeah, totally. Uh, Jeff Teague did it a lot during Jeff Teague's all-star, like he'd back up and he'd, he'd get a running start. And certainly like the little Fred Van Vliet pitch plays at the top of the arc to Pascal don't have the same downhill punch as they did in 2018-19 or 2019-20. But this is something I've wondered about because when I watch the game, this is what I see, but I'm not sure if this is rose-colored glasses or something like, oh, well, he's taking these shots because of the roster construction and because, you know, this is what the defense dictates because it's, is that too easy? Like, am I laying off Pascal instead of saying he's making bad decisions? Like, why is he shooting twice as many mid-range jumpers as he ever has? And so I was curious to bounce that idea off of you. Like, do you think that this is something that's kind of, being put on him and this is the result of how defenses are playing him or do you think that there's like a little bit of bankrupt offensive decision making uh you know i think the, I, I lean towards the the first initial point i made but i also think again it's having that true belief in you know your top speed your top physical condition and so again i think these next 10 to 15 games if we start to see a little bit more of that north-south, then I'll say, okay, now he's really starting to feel it. You know, there, there was that play um, against OKC where he does the spin off one foot, um, where he was barreling right through, and then all of a sudden he goes to the spin and he's able to change direction. I forget. I, that, I forget did he get now. fouled? Yeah, he did miss the shot. Oh he, yeah, that was that was against Mitchell Robinson, I think, in the Knicks. Knicks, yeah, correct, exactly, yeah, and that's one of those wow plays, right? And then I remember when that happened, I was like, man, I have not seen that for a while, and and that to me is, you know, there, every player I think has a swagger play, like a pet play that's almost like their heat check, where it's like, when I'm feeling good. I can do that. And, and so when I saw him do that, I'm thinking, okay, he, he's really starting to feel like himself again. And so I'm really hopeful now these 10 to 15 games that are coming up 
that we get to see more of that. We get to see more of the north south, uh, and he'll really start to ramp up. Yeah, yeah, a spin at full speed is like a hell of a thing to pull off, and controlling the ball while doing it is um, pretty wild. But okay, um, as far as like passing, three point <laughs> shooting, um, passing reads. Is there anything you've liked or disliked there? I will say I've never been a big believer in Pascal Siakam as a three-point shooter. I think he he still needs to convince me of that. You know, I think uh, the people who have been a bit carried away with his three-point shooting maybe haven't necessarily uh, paid attention to the discrepancy between his corner three-point shot, uh, especially when assisted. Um versus his above the break shooting and i feel like to truly be an effective three-point shooter the above the break shooting has to be there um and especially now since you know a good chunk of those above the break shots are probably coming uh well probably less so now than last season but you know off the dribble threes that's a really special skill to have and i think without that um as someone who is currently the number one option on the team. Uh, I think that's something that is going to be limiting in terms of his ceiling. Yeah. I think 2019, 20 was basically the one, like if, if you're doing the 750 attempts, three point stabilizing, that has to be not only the number, well, that's like conventional wisdom, but also that has to be like a stable context. And so Pascal prior to 2019-20 was taking like what, like 80% corner threes. And so that's adding to his stabilization number of like around 36%. And then 2019-20, he's obviously on a heater and he took like, I think like only 20% corner threes and he shot around 36% on the season and he was seeing a lot of pull-ups too. But basically over the past, like if you discount 2019-20 because it looks like not not an outlier as far as you know shooting talent but even like shooting you know diet as far as that goes like he took a lot of pull-up threes relative to the rest of his career um the three-point shot as you say like above the break versus the corner there's certainly a discrepancy so while he will have around like 750 attempts at like 35 36 percent and that's good it's just like they're no longer recreating the terms of that shot diet. So why would that hold up the same way? And so, you know, it's tough because the Raptors have to position Pascal above the break rather than the corner because everybody else, like that's who you want to have the ball going downhill. Like on second side action, Pascal, if the ball funnels to him, you'd rather have him above the break than a lot of other players on the roster. Like Justin Champagne, if he's sharing the floor, put Justin Champagne on the baseline, let him oscillate between like tip dunks and dunker spot action and like moving off ball showing and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. So Pascal, the three point shooting is really interesting to me because it doesn't look right. You know what I mean? Like the, the, and especially not even discrepancy on like corner versus um, above the break, but just discrepancy on makes versus misses. Like he's Mm -hmm. missing by too much. And this is also like the Scotty Barnes thing last game too. Is Scotty hit that step back three, and then he had a wide open three in overtime, 
and he gave the Jerry West logo a concussion. Like he clanged that right off the glass. It didn't touch rim. So you want a guy, like if you're a coaching staff, you want a guy who's going to put the ball in the vicinity of the rim. And you're like, it'll fall in enough of the time. But when a guy is like clanging it off the glass or airballing like Scotty and Pascal have been, despite both of them shooting, I think 33% or above from deep, it's like, how do you ever bet on that? And the defenses they're playing absolutely do not. They're like, yeah, you can shoot it. And yeah, yeah that's been the most backbreaking aspect of Pascal's game so far this year is fourth quarter catch and shoot three point attempts. I think that has been, he hit one against OKC. I'm pretty sure he hit one against, I can't remember. He hit one against OKC for sure with like two minutes left. That was great. But overall, I think he's probably sitting around like 15% on those, like the catch and shoot fourth quarter stuff. That's That's been tough particularly. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, when you think about the spacing on the floor, whether it's, and we talk about late game offense, whether you want Scotty mid post, whether you want Pascal mid post, you know, how that functions, uh, so much of it comes down to their ability to present themselves as a three-point threat, you know, whoever's off ball, right? And, uh, and I think that's something that needs to be looked at. Uh, and, and with Pascal, you know, maybe there is a, a happy medium to be found with him now that you, again, have all these shot creators and you have all these playmakers on the team uh, where you can shift him more towards the three point diet of, you know, 18, 19 and, and get him more of those uh, assisted looks, uh, especially from the corner. And again, I would, I, I would respect him from the corner, but especially above the break, you know, he's, he's not someone that is striking fear into uh, an opponent, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, like getting back to that 18, 19 shot diet, like 70% of his shots came from the corner and he shot, what is it? 41% on them. And like 97% of his threes that year were assisted this year. Every single three has been assisted, but 22% of them come from the corner. It's just like, he's, he's not being serviced in the same way. Kawhi isn't here anymore. Like it, the defense is not paying attention the same way. And they don't have like Fred, Kyle, Danny, Serge, Mark, and those guys above the break and Pascal just, you know, chilling in the corner, ready for like these little dunker spot cut-ins and all that kind of stuff. Like it's just different. And yeah, it's, I, I do, I do believe actually it's probably fair to look at Pascal and say that the three point shot, despite having that huge boom of shooting talent in like 2019, 20, I do think it's still in the prove me area, which is not ideal, but I think it's fair to look at it now and say it's prove me. Um, as far as the passing, the reactive stuff I've actually been really happy with, like making reads against the moving defense when he's attacking with advantage. Really happy with that. A little bit underwhelmed with the proactive passing, like from a standstill, reading how the defense is adjusting and making reads from there, which is actually, that's the inverse from last season, where last season in the um, the Tampa season, his proactive passing was really great and like all the passing metrics especially like shot quality stuff rated him as just an immensely talented passer and a guy who created a ton of great looks and this year the the proactive stuff has been a little bit underwhelming i think but the the reactive stuff's been great like the stuff in transition the grab and go stuff there's nothing i love more 
well, there's obviously like Scotty and uh, Pascal short roll partnerships are obviously my favorite, but like when Pascal grabs it and Fred leaks out in transition and he hits a three, that's like my favorite thing. Are there any takeaways you have of Pascal's passing? Yeah, with the proactive stuff, I think it's a combination of maybe some of the role changes that we've seen and obviously the personnel changes uh, as well. And so, you know, there are those opportunities maybe sometimes where he's playing with Precious Achua and like you said, you know, Precious, he's in space and he doesn't know what to do. And Pascal is like, I know what you need to do. (laughs) I can find you here. (laughs) And it just doesn't happen. And so now, again, you have to go to the secondary option, the tertiary option, whatever it may be that comes out of that. Um, You look at, uh, you know, the chemistry that that he's shown with Scotty Barnes is great so far, but I still feel like there's definitely, uh, you know, maybe two, three more gears to this thing where uh, they develop an understanding and it's going to be a real problem for defenders. Uh, And so... Uh, I think that has steps to grow. Um, and then I think there's also a little bit of him understanding when OG comes back that there will be a little bit of reclassification of roles. Uh, and so, again, what does that look like? Where players positioned on the floor? Um, and then finally, I would just say, you know, the Pascal plus bench units, that's probably where a lot of, uh, you know, the clogged up situations emerge. And so I think that's just, that's just tough uh, for him to operate in. I mean, we've seen even with with the starting lineup, when that's a bit clogged, it it can get difficult. So, uh, you know, when, when he's out there with uh, four other guys that aren't making shots, (laughs) it's, it's not going to look pretty at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the bench stuff is tough, especially when, like, Utah or Svi aren't hitting threes. And Svi especially, like, this is a guy. Mm-mm. Like, no. has the shooter tag. And th- that's the most interesting thing about Svi is he's far and away the best, like, guard on the roster as far as athletically. Like, his his pop, his balance, his burst is way better than anybody else on the roster. Like, Gary, Fred, they, they don't come close. But he's been stamped as a shooter. And like, ah, I'm not so sure, my guy. Like, I don't know if you're stamped. But he certainly, he has a reputation. He draws closeouts, but uh, he's not hitting. It's pretty nasty. Uh, Yeah, so any, any like, cliff notes of Pascal's return so far? Anything you want to hit on? I think the biggest thing I'll hit on is just the fact that I'm really encouraged by the last few games uh and as you mentioned his burst his decision making uh, i think all of that is coming around so i think these next 10 15 games uh will be even more reflective of the pascal that we can expect to see for the remainder of the season yeah basically the the one thing i want to see is like for everything to stabilize and see how much because he came back and then half court offense went boom way up and he obviously does help a lot with that and i want to see that state but it's also went down a little bit again recently too so it's like i just want to see the half court offense stabilize because he should allow for that presence while also seeing the defense kind of stabilize as well 
I just want to see this team find like a consistent foot in the season and uh, which God, who knows? It's been, a we long all time. do. Yeah. It's been a long time since you, me, and Nick, Fred. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, let's talk about Fred. All-star. Um, let's do it. I think Fred has been an all-star this year. You know, it's not just like, you know, EPM or Darko anymore. It's not just the advanced analytics that rate him as an incredible player. It's, a lot of the more traditional statistics that he starts to succeed in this, as far as finishing at the rim this year, he's been a revelation. It's not like De'Aaron Fox, 2018, 19, 19, 20. Like he's not 70% at the rim on high volume, but he's certainly doing it enough to warrant attention to say, this is something he's better at. Not only that, but he's creating more two point looks, more layups for teammates and the three point shooting. Um, as far as we talked about, like, Svi being stamped as a shooter. Fred has been stamped as a shooter with, for a lot of people, the seeming upside of like, this guy should be pulling and pulling often. And that has really come around this year. So like more dangerous passing, more dangerous shooting, better finishing, and the defense is on par. Uh, He's like an immensely positive player. And a lot of the more traditional stuff is starting to recognize him as that too. So it's like, I just see him as an all-star now. He's an all-star level player. I agree. Whether he makes the all-star team is a very interesting question. Uh, Because when you put this in the notes, I was thinking about it and saying, okay, well, James Harden and Trey Young will probably get voted in as the starting guards. Um, You've got Zach Levine, who should be a lock. Uh, I think... Kyle Lowry will get the coach's vote. Um, I think LaMelo Ball will be there. Uh, unless the Wizards go into a deep slide, I would put Bradley Beal is there as well. Um, and then that's where it gets interesting. He's battling, you know, Drew Holiday and Darius Garland. And uh, what does that conversation... I, I think now with the, you know, hyperextended left knee, I think it's going to be a little tight for Chris Middleton. Um, so, so yeah, when I look at Drew Holiday, when I look at Darius Garland, what does this stretch now for the Milwaukee Bucks without Giannis look like? If he goes on an absolute heater, and Chris Middleton for that matter, if Drew Holiday can go on an absolute heater uh, and have the Bucks, you know, head above water, then... I think he might stake his claim to be the second guy for the Bucks, um, but uh, if he doesn't, then I could see him sliding out of the picture. With Darius Garland, you know how much uh, more Cle- uh, winning can Cleveland do between now uh, and when the voting ends uh, to get a second guy? Because I think Jared Allen will be their first guy. Um, so, so I think those are the two guys I would earmark as who Fred has to beat. And as I've said, with those two teams, I have to say the same for the Raptors. It comes down to how much they win. If they're in the, I'll I'll say this, if the Raptors are in the top eight, when it comes down to, uh, you know, the coaches voting and whatnot, uh, I think that's what that would get Fred in the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's tough to see them at like above 500 or even 500 and not to have a, a representative as well. He's just been awesome. I think uh, I've always, I've wanted to have like a little spot on every weekly podcast to say like, wow, Fred doing good things. Like, 
at an even higher level. Just progression appears to be linear uh, for this guy, as it has been for some players in the past. Um, the bench unit, the Raptors bench, um, worst three-point shooting, I think, by almost 4%. Right? <laughs> worst scoring. I mean, and, you know, De'Aaron Fox had an awesome, awesome media session after his game against the Raptors where he talked about, like, playing hard as opposed to playing smart and saying like, nobody likes to lose at this level and everybody plays hard at this level and everybody's doing things at the NBA level. And, and he also talked about like, well, we just played the Raptors bench and they destroyed us and nobody there is just going to go give you a bucket. They're just running through actions and we let them do that. And we let them get to their spots. And it's like, yeah, I guess the Kings did because the Raptors bench has not been able to do that against virtually any other team this year uh what are your thoughts on the Raptors bench yeah I mean that's the, that's the beauty of sample sizes right Fox Fox's opinion is based on you know the, the two games that he's he's played against them and uh if he were to watch all the other games I, I don't think he'd have that same opinion so um I think I, I think the Raptors bench offensively you know I think Svi is so disappointing because you know that he is a guy that is a very willing shooter, uh, if, if, if not, <laughs> you know, as capable as one might like to think. And with the other guys, Utah, uh, you know, uh, Justin Champagne of late, whoever it may be, you know, the willingness to shoot isn't quite there. Um, and I think we've seen over the course of the Raptors development uh, of players, it's, it's a, a step-by-step process, especially with outside shooting of first being willing to shoot to get to the point where you're confident that you're going to make the shot and that acceptance that, Hey, the ball swinging to me, this is, this is my turn in the offense. Uh, and recognizing that is the first step. And there's not quite enough of that. Um, uh, there's not quite enough of, uh, you know, again, just recognizing space and opportunities uh, to score uh, and to be productive and effective. Um, and, and sometimes it is just not doing the right thing at the right time. And so what I mean by that is you will see a drive to the basket and then you will see an accompanying cut that just clogs up the paint. And it's like, no, just stay where you were and space the floor. Now is not the time for that. And so little things like that, I think, make the offense even more difficult. And the last thing is, is, you know, you don't have Kyle Lowry plus bench anymore. Yeah. And, and the Fred Van Vliet plus bench appears to be something that is like on the cusp maybe of being a thing because Fred is just such an overwhelmingly positive player at this point. But uh, this is where guys like Kyle Kuzma, you're like, hell yeah. I absolutely see why teams would just gobble him up and be like, yep, you can be on a contender. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like having a guy like Kyle Kuzma who is has a great nose for cuts and shoots too much bench units now more than ever because of the heliocentric phase the NBA has been going through and the kind of like, homogenous three and D style or whatever, they've amassed a bunch of players who 
do not want to go into the middle, do not want to get into the in-between stuff and don't want to put the ball on the floor and then start making reads. They want to have reads made for them. They want to like it to be binary and guys who are willing to just leave the binary and operate in that, you know, in the middle game and then look for opportunities to extend advantages and stuff like that and take advantages. That's the interesting part is because like, as far as skill set, is Kyle Kuzma a more talented player than Utah? Yeah, I would say probably. Is it by like a crazy, crazy amount? Honestly, I don't think so. But it's like the mindset and the willingness to go into spaces and extend advantages and, and help create them and stuff like that, that you just, you want somebody to take that leap. And especially Svi, as you said, being disappointing, the shooting thing, but like Svi was beating hedges in and like traps in the pick and roll in the preseason and was making awesome reads as a passer. And that's just nowhere to be found as far as like a a secondary creator. It's that's why like there was now, obviously it looks ridiculous, but there was like a fringe group of people who were like, Svi is the starting guard over Gary, right? Because Svi looks so good in the preseason. And uh, yeah, that just, there's been no representation of that type of play uh, so far, I think. And also like Chris Boucher, not hitting threes is a, obviously not great for those lineups either no uh not at all and you know i think you hit on an interesting point about uh players not developing some sort of in between and i think this is also where you see a bit of uh the influence of money and uh you see players say for example you know not to just focus on one player, but you look at a Robert Covington and you say, okay, this is a guy that understands how his bread gets buttered and says, okay, I got to be able to shoot the three from the corner, knock down maybe one or two here above the break. And other than that, I'm just playing uh, defense at an elite level. And uh, I think that expectation that someone else will be there to create the shot And my job is to just knock down the corner. I think if you are an in-between player, it's more easy now to fall in love with the idea of my job this summer is to really become like a 40% corner shooter and not really think about that other stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's, and that's what the Raptors have asked guys to do as well as like from Malcolm Miller, Alfonso McKinney to Utah now is or champagne who champagne like everything about his game screams just not shooting just making inter like being interpretive on the floor making cuts like dunker spot savant and all that kind of stuff but they're obviously telling him like get to the corner get those reps up you know what i mean and it's that that's where the nba is currently i'm expecting it to swing back to some degree well actually just because of the way teams defend now it's going to swing back to some degree but yeah, that's interesting. It's like, it's a lot easier to just walk in and say, I got to get these reps up and I don't have to do all these other drills that are like maybe more dynamic and more cutting edge and that kind of stuff to try and create like um, chunking so that you recognize like rotations as a passer or as like a shooter or whatever, but yeah. And to uh, your point, uh, it is a bit of a chicken and the egg situation because, you know, that's what coaches want as well because they set up the hierarchy and say, okay, we already have, player x y and z to take these mid-range shots right 
we're okay with them taking it, but not you. If it's you, then it's got to be, you know, above the break or in the corner or a shot at the rim, right? And, and I think that is both sides of the argument where, you know, they'll say, okay, once you get that down, Pat, where we rely on you as a 40% shooter, then, okay, go ahead and work on other things and think about that. But right now, this is how you're going to get minutes. This is how you're going to stay on this team. <sighs> Tough to be a role player in the NBA. <laughs> Just like the team is like, hey, you want to make money? There's some things you got to do. Yeah. Uh, that feels like a podcast. How do you feel about that? I feel good. I feel good. Always a pleasure chatting ball with you, Samson. So uh, I feel like it's been a little while. So I really enjoyed this. Sometime. Yeah. Um, the floor is yours, brother, to plug away anything you think the readers or listeners, readers, <laughs> anything the listeners should be uh, tuned <laughs> I will plug you away because I think you do awesome work. And I think uh, whether it's the podcast at Raptors Republic, whether it's minute basketball or minute basketball, however people prefer it, uh, I think uh, you and Lewis uh, Zatzman do a great job with that. And I wish you all the success. And for everyone listening, uh, make sure you're checking that out as well. And besides that, you know, you, you can follow Samson along on Twitter as well. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're far too kind uh, to give me the, the plug over yourself. But um, uh, returning sentiments, Vivek um, has been doing excellent work for a long time and continues to do so at cbcraptors.com and complex thank you for coming on man thanks for having me all right and listener whether you got into this in the morning or at night hope you enjoyed it uh have a blessed day and goodbye